Welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Paul knew that his work in Ephesus was coming to an end. In Acts 19 verse 21, Paul had already revealed that he would soon go to Jerusalem and that after that, he fully anticipated traveling to Rome too. Paul planned to go through Achaia and Macedonia on the way, not only to encourage and strengthen those believers in the foundation of the faith, but also to collect the offering that these Gentile churches wanted to send with him to their struggling brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Paul knew that this offering was extremely important because a group of Jewish Christians known as Judaizers had continued voicing opposition to the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church, despite what had been agreed upon at the Jerusalem Council many years before. Paul knew that by taking the offering of the Gentile churches to those in Jerusalem, it would go a long way to showing the unity of all of those who believed, and also a long way to silencing their critics. Accordingly, once the riot had been broken up, Paul prepared to leave Ephesus. Luke reports in Acts 20 verse 1 that when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because the Jews made a plot against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby. Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days." Many disciples from different cities began to travel with Paul, including Luke, who rejoined their group when they passed through Philippi. The group stayed in Troas for seven days to allow Paul to teach the believers there, and we understand the urgency of his preaching from Luke's description of his last night among them. Verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Do not be alarmed, he said. 
He is alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Paul had so much to teach them that his message went on late into the night. Perhaps because the many lamps in the upstairs room made it difficult to breathe, or possibly because of a long day's work, a young man named Eutychus was sinking into a deep sleep. He may have chosen to sit on the window ledge to keep himself awake, but overcome by fatigue, he eventually fell to his death in the street below. You may be interested to know that the name Eutychus actually means fortunate in Greek, and indeed this young man was most fortunate, for Paul immediately hurried down to the street and raised him from the dead, much to the delight of all those present. I think Paul certainly operated with supernatural stamina by the power of the Holy Spirit because after preaching in Troas until dawn, he then immediately left on foot for a place called Assos about 20 miles away where he planned to meet up with his companions who had gone by ship. Verse 13 We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that we crossed over Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. We aren't specifically told why Paul walked from Troas to Assos. However, it's very likely it was so that he could spend more time with the believers from Troas who might well have walked with him. Once he joined the rest of his party on board the ship, they followed the shipping route past several cities that dotted the coast of Asia before they eventually arrived in the port city of Miletus, some miles south of Ephesus. To save time, Paul chose not to dock in Ephesus, but rather asked the leaders of the Ephesian church to meet him in Miletus so that they could have some last moments together while the ship swapped out its cargo. By all accounts, it was a very emotional meeting. Verse 17 From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews." You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. 
However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. He begins by reminding them of how he lived among them from the beginning. He'd shown steadfast dedication, serving the Lord with humility. And we remember that biblical humility is not a case of thinking less of yourself. No, biblical humility is really not thinking of yourself at all. Paul had served Christ with selfless devotion and with courage. He had never held back from preaching anything that would be helpful to them, despite the many plots of his adversaries. Without discrimination, he declared a consistent message of repentance and faith in Christ to both Jew and Greek alike. He'd come to terms with the fact that his future was in God's hands, and he was willing to follow the Lord despite the many hardships he knew that lay ahead. His sole motivation was to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus had given him, the ongoing task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And no matter where the Holy Spirit led him or what that entailed, he meant to carry it out. He makes a plain in verse 25 that this will be their last meeting. He says, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. How very difficult this must have been for his friends to hear, that none of them would ever see him again. How their hearts must have wanted to beg him not to go to the prison and hardships that he knew awaited him in Jerusalem. No wonder Paul had chosen not to go back to the whole church in Ephesus, but rather just speak with the leaders in Miletus. He reminds them that he had always preached the truth concerning the gospel and that his conscience was clear. If people had rejected his message, their blood was on their own heads, for he had faithfully declared the gospel to all people. Then Paul turned his thoughts to the elders themselves, urging them in verse 28 to keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. He reminds them that the church belongs to God himself and that they are merely overseers of what belongs to the Lord. This was a task that they had not chosen, but rather it was a task for which they had been chosen by the Holy Spirit. They were to think of themselves as shepherds of the sheep Christ had purchased with his own blood. 
Paul warns them to carefully guard the truth they have received from him, because in the days ahead, wolves from without will come in among them, and false teachers will even arise from within, seeking to distort the truth of the gospel in order to draw away disciples after themselves. And so they were to be on their guard, ever remembering what Paul had taught them by both word and by deed in the three years he'd been with them. This certainly holds true for us, even today, as we guard ourselves against those whose preaching has a form of godliness, while at the same time denying the power of the cross and the necessity for all people to turn from their sin to receive the salvation that has been purchased by Christ's blood. Paul understood that the believers needed to hold firmly to what God had taught them, and he encourages them with the words in verse 32, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. As any good teacher, Paul was transferring the affection and confidence his followers had in him to the one who alone could sustain them and keep them. He commends them to God and to the truth that Paul had taught them about grace. As this not only had the power to strengthen them in their faith, it was able to purify them as well, setting them apart from the rest of men as sanctified ones who belonged to to and served God. The Greek word for those who are sanctified here is hagiadzo, which creates a picture of something that's been picked up from a trash heap, washed, cleansed of all defilement, and set aside for new and noble use by God himself. And you know, God's word has a way of doing that to us, of taking us from the trash heap of life, cleansing us and setting us apart for new and noble use in God's kingdom. Paul wanted the Ephesians to remember that, and so should we. Paul reminds them again of how he lived among them, urging them to follow his example of strenuous effort and loving generosity. He says, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul had never been greedy for personal gain. Rather, he'd worked hard and helped those less fortunate. Paul was careful to live as a good ambassador for Christ in every area of his life, and he was not afraid to call the Ephesians to imitate his example. He wrote the same to the Corinthians, saying, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And he also told the Philippians, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. What a challenge that is for us today. Finally, when Paul had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. 
What a sad parting. It must have been so difficult to separate, and yet Paul was focused on God's call. And like his Saviour before him, though facing certain death, Paul set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. Nothing could draw him away from God's will for him. Luke reports in Acts 21 verse 1 that after we'd torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed in Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All of the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. In this passage, we note the urgency and the sheer determination of Paul to reach Jerusalem as quickly as he could. If you remember, Paul had said in Acts 20.16 that he wanted to be in Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost, if possible, as it was one of the feasts that all Jewish males were supposed to attend. It seemed really important to him to faithfully keep his Jewish traditions while ministering to the Gentiles, perhaps as a way of uniting the church. The first ship that Paul and his companions travelled on was a slow vessel that stopped at every port on the way, and so at Patara they found a faster vessel sailing directly to Tyre. When the ship stopped there to unload its cargo, Paul was welcomed by the disciples that they found living in that city. The believers of Tyre sensed the Holy Spirit's warning of what awaited Paul in Jerusalem, and out of their own personal concern, they urged Paul not to go. But he knew that indeed it was the Lord who was leading him there, and he was determined to complete both his race and his ministry to the glory of God. Thus, when the time came for their ship to depart, they went down to the shore and knelt for a time of prayer together before Paul's group set out for Ptolemaeus and Caesarea. Verse 7. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemaeus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Remember Philip? He was the evangelist who ministered in Samaria and who also led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ in Acts chapter 8. He'd been one of the seven who, along with Stephen, had been selected to serve the widows of Jerusalem. He was now living in Caesarea with his four daughters, who were all very actively involved in prophetic ministry for God. 
Luke, however, focuses on the work of another prophet who came to Caesarea from Judea, a man by the name of Agabus, whom Paul had met previously in Antioch in Acts 11. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. In the manner often used by prophets at that time, Agabus acted out the fate that awaited Paul. Using the apostle's belt, he tied his own hands and feet to illustrate what would happen to Paul at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders, who would not only bind him, but who would hand him over to the Romans. All who heard this warning were deeply concerned and they begged Paul not to go up to Jerusalem, but his mind was already made up. It broke his heart, in fact, to see how distressed they were, and yet he was unwilling to alter his course. There are times in life when God's commands will not make sense to us, but as followers of Christ, we have to be prepared to submit to his authority, and just as Christ did in the Garden of Gethsemane, declare, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And indeed, God's will for Paul's life was done. Verse 15, after this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasseh, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. The believers in Jerusalem received Paul and his companions warmly, rejoicing in all the Lord had done in the lands of the Gentiles. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They've been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. The elders reported that God had been doing great things among the Jews also, and many thousands of them had come to faith in Jesus as their Messiah. However, many of them were still very zealous for the law of Moses, and rumors had spread about Paul's teaching that were inaccurate. Some said he was actually instructing Jews in Gentile territory to turn away from Moses, speaking against the Jewish customs and even the 
the custom of circumcision. This was a misrepresentation of his teaching, for Paul had continued to pass on what the Council of Jerusalem had agreed upon, that the Gentiles did not need to go through circumcision before they were able to accept Christ. Paul knew that the Jewish law was irrelevant for Gentiles, but he never sought to draw the Jew away from the customs of their forefathers. And you might even remember that Paul even circumcised Timothy so he would not be a stumbling block to the Jewish people that they'd be ministering to. The elders in Jerusalem knew Paul's presence in the city might cause strife, and so they asked, what shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses, so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we've written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Confirming the decision of the Jerusalem Council all of those years before, the elders made it clear that no additional requirements were to be placed on Gentile believers who turned to Christ. However, for the sake of peace and to prove that Paul really did still value the traditions of his people, they suggested he go through a purification ceremony and that he also pay the expenses of four men who'd undertaken a Nazarite vow. For by doing this, others would surely see that as a Jew himself, he still honored their traditions and that there was no truth to the reports about him, for he was still walking in obedience to the law of Moses. Though Paul knew that he was cleansed by Christ, he was willing to accommodate the concerns of the more sensitive believers for the sake of unity. And his participation in the rite was not a sign of weakness at all, but rather a sign of strength. Verse 26. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and had assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. 
As you might remember from Acts 2, Jews from all over the world were present in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And we're told that some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. The fact that they were from Asia makes it likely that they recognized him from Ephesus. It seems these were Jewish people who had not accepted Jesus Christ. And when they realized who Paul was, they immediately called called for the help of other Jews to arrest him. Not only did they falsely accuse Paul about speaking against the Jews and the law, they also accused him of violating the temple itself. Apparently, they'd seen him in the city previously with a Greek man called Trophimus, who they also recognized from Ephesus, and incorrectly presumed that Paul had illegally brought him into the temple area, an act that was not only strictly forbidden, it was punishable by death. Consequently, the whole city was stirred up. They seized Paul and dragged him from the temple. But to find out what happened to him next, you'll have to join me next week. May God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.